morning. That was good. First service is really good, too. They said good morning really well. My name is Chris Moore. I'm the Family Ministries Director here at LBC, and I'm excited and humbled to uh, be able to open God's Word with you this morning. I realized preparing for this sermon, and I understand the weight of bringing God's Word before the church and the, the responsibility and the accountability that comes along with that, and you realize your unworthiness when you do it. But I'm reminded of the fact that God has entrusted us with the gospel, entrusted us as ambassadors for him to go out and proclaim the gospel and proclaim the good news. So those who are unworthy get to declare and proclaim the one who is worthy, and that's who we're going to talk about this morning. But before we get into that, a few announcements. The first one is Easter Sunday is next Sunday. So yeah, praise God, and I can't believe the year's going by that fast, but we have two services on Sunday, but I want you to make note of the change that we're going to make to the time to the second service. So first service will be at 8.30, second service will start at 10.30, so we're going to move it back 30 minutes. So 8.30 and 10.30 for next Sunday, for Easter Sunday. The second announcement is our new members of our church. So on the screen behind me, we should have some photos of families in our church who have decided to make LBC their home. And so when we talk about membership, what we're saying is that these families are choosing to invest in this local body of believers, the church family here at LBC, and invest and serve and, and just be a part of the life of our church. And what they're also saying is that they're, they're committing to be under the authority of the leadership of the church. And so the, the beauty of the church is that God has entrusted men, qualified men, to lead and shepherd the church and point them to the Lord. And so there's an authority that comes with that, and they're committing to, to serve under that. And so membership's not a country club. You don't get exclusive perks. We don't have sales and clearances that only members are available to. This is just simply saying that we're committing to this body of believers. And lastly, uh, as we've been going through this discipleship series, we're, today is sermon number three. We're going to be talking about maturity. But we've been going and doing a discipleship class in, in A105. So Pastor Dave and I have been teaching that together. And so it's really for those people, those of you who want to disciple others, we're going to equip and train you to be able to do that. And I'm hoping by the end of this sermon that we will have encouraged you to, to participate in discipling other believers in the church and to be discipled. So let me pray, and we'll jump into God's Word together. Heavenly Father, I'm just blown away by your faithfulness, Lord, in your goodness, in your mercy. God, it's uh, through Jesus Christ going to the cross, paying the penalty for our sins, but not staying dead, rise again three days later, which we're going to celebrate next week. Those who believe and put their faith and trust in Christ, they have life with you. And God, you want to have a relationship with us. And you did all the work to reconcile us to you through Christ. And God, you have chosen to use discipleship to help us grow in our understanding and our love for you. And God, I pray that today that we would help understand what that means. And God, we would give you all the glory and praise. And, and we would thank you for the work that you've done for us and who you are. God, be with me as I speak. May they not be my words. Get me out of the way and may it be your words. Your words are the ones that do not return void. 
Um, so lead us today. Holy Spirit, will you open up our minds and hearts to your word to receive it? God, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so like I mentioned, we're in sermon number three of our discipleship series, and we're going to be talking about maturity today. But I can't start a sermon about discipleship without reminding us of the command of discipleship. So Matthew 28, 19 through 20, this is Jesus speaking to his disciples, and this is right before he's going to ascend back to the Father and go back to heaven. So he's, he's been crucified, he rose again, he was on the earth for 40 days, and somewhere in that 40 days he makes this statement to his disciples, and he tells them, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So Jesus' final words are very important. He's telling his disciples, go make more disciples. And what we'll see here when we start in John 17, starting in verse 20, is that those disciples, it's the message that those disciples were proclaiming throughout generations that has enabled us today to be able to believe in Jesus Christ. It was the work that they did starting 2,000 years ago. Generation after generation, the word was proclaimed. And discipleship is the vehicle that God has chosen to mature the church. It's what he's chosen to draw the unbelieving world to himself and then the church, those who believe in Jesus, to grow in their relationship with him. It's through the work of other believers. God uses them to help us grow in our maturity. And so when I was preparing for this sermon, there's this random uh, commercial that came out in the 80s that kept resonating in my mind, and I don't know why, but I'm going to share it with you, okay? So there's a, there's a commercial that came out in 1984, and it's uh, the, the, the slogan for the commercial was, I'm not just the president, I'm a client. If you remember, that was Hair Club for Men, 1984. For some reason, that commercial just kept going all through the 80s. But when I thought about this, it reminded me of that not only am I a fan of discipleship, but I'm a product of it. So I wouldn't be able to stand here before you if it wasn't for faithful people who were sharing the gospel with me in junior high and high school. And I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for faithful men the last 20 years who have loved me and pointed me to Christ. If I get a little emotional about that, it's because it's a big deal. And this is what Jesus, this is why it's important when Jesus says, go out and make disciples of all the nations. And the reason it's important because I did not grow up in a Christian home. Mom and dad loved us very well. They did a great job raising us, but Jesus wasn't in our home. And so it wasn't until I was 18 that... Uh, I surrendered my life to Christ. I was sitting in a church. It was a little church plant in Rosedale, and I was with a good friend of mine, and the pastor was present, presenting the gospel and that the fact that I was a sinner. And because of my sin, I was separated from God, and I needed a Savior. I needed someone to pay that penalty for my sin, and that was Jesus. And that by simply believing and trusting Jesus, repenting of my sins and confessing and believing in Jesus, that I would be made right with the God that my heart was longing for. There was this emptiness in my heart that I didn't know where it was coming from, and it was because I didn't know God. It was on that day, July 4th, 1999, I surrendered my life to the Lord. The day after I turned 18, the day before I went and got a piercing and smoked my first cigarette, and the next day I'm crying in the middle of a church, giving my life to Jesus, right? It's a transformation that only God can do. 
but it's been those men that have been faithful to me. God's always had one in my life, at least, that has encouraged me and helped me grow in my maturity, and I needed a lot of it, and I still need more. We all do. So what we'll see in this passage is that Jesus is primarily talking about the unity of the church, but we'll see that that unity is really dependent upon our maturity. We see in verse 23 when it says that they may become perfectly one. Those are maturity words. That word perfectly is saying that they may become complete. They may be perfected. It's a process. And so God is in the process of maturing us, and it's through our maturity that the church becomes united. And this is important. Colossians 1, 28 through 29. This is the Apostle Paul. He's writing from prison. When he should be receiving letters from the churches encouraging him, he's writing letters to them encouraging them in prison. And he says this, Him, Jesus, we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And then he says, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Paul's mission was to help the church grow in maturity. Every amount of energy that was given to him by Christ, he struggled and toiled for that end to see other believers grow in their relationship with Christ and grow in their Christ-likeness. And it's this maturity of the believers that leads to unity. And it's the unity of the church that ultimately leads the unbelieving world to Christ. It's the unity, it's the love that we have for each other that tells the world that you are loved and that we are from God and they are, tra- are attracted to that. So let's jump into John 17. I'm going to read verses 21 and 23 first and kind of set our, the stage for us. So John 17, 21 and 23. It says, that they may all be one, and he's referring to believers today, just as you, Father, and me and I and you, that they also may be in us. Key words in there are so that, right? This unity leads to something. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. Verse 23. I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one. So that, there's the key words again, the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. The unity of the church that leads the unbelieving world to Christ. So if that's the case, then the opposite is also true. Thomas Manton was a, a preacher in the 1600s, and he made this, this statement that I wanted to include, and it says, divisions in the church breed atheism in the world. So if our unity leads to the, the unbelieving world, leads them to Christ, it's the divisions that lead them, push them away from Christ. And so the point today is that discipleship is the division disruptor. And that sounds like a, a little pew, pew, pew video game, division disruptor. But the point of it is, is that it's through discipleship, it's these close relationships with people within the church that removes the division. It helps eliminate the arguments over worship styles and the way we wear our hair and the way we dress and, and the way the new generation wants to, to run the church. Those those Discipleship relationships help eliminate that, those arguments and those debates. Discipleship is the division disruptor. So if the unity of the church strengthens as we grow in maturity, and it's our maturity that leads people to Christ, the question we're going to answer today is how do we grow in maturity? 
This is important. And I think John 17, 20 through 26 gives us some keys to how we grow in maturity. And what we're going to see is that the church grows in maturity when we, the individual believers, invest in our family, we focus on our future, and when we know our Father. So we grow in maturity when we invest in our family, focus on our future, and know our Father. So first we're going to talk about growing in maturity when we invest in our family. So let's read chapter 17, verses 20 through 23. We'll read most of this again. But I want you to hear the language that Jesus is using as he's praying to the Father. And keep in mind, he, the, the previous verses in this chapter, he's been praying for the disciples that are with him that day. He shifts gears in, chapter, in verse 20, and he starts praying for the future believers. He's praying for us, those who are going to hear the message that the disciples are, are proclaiming. He's praying for us today. And he says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. And we see Jesus is using family language here. God the Son, Jesus, praying to God the Father. He's referring to the church, saying that the church is one with us. And so he's talking about the family. And Jesus, what he's trying to say is that if we are a family, those who believe in Jesus and have become part of God's family, he wants us to live like we're family. He wants us to act like we're family. So who is our family? And I wanted to, to make this differentiation here. And who is the church? So Mark 3, 31 through 35, Jesus makes that distinction for us. And it says, And his mother and his brothers, Jesus' mother and brothers, came and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. And so he differentiates. He says, those who do the will of God, it's those who put their faith and trust in Christ, those who then demonstrate that they follow Christ by living and doing his will and obeying and following Jesus. Those are the family of God. In the family of God, God goes on to also tell us that we've been adopted into the family. Romans 8, 15 through 17. It says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. We've been adopted into his kingdom. Further, what have we been adopted from? Colossians 1, 13 through 14. He, God the Father, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Before Christ, we were in the domain of darkness. In the domain of darkness, 
There's no concern for our maturity. We are neglected orphans in the domain of darkness. But because of God's great love, even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And because of Christ, we have been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. We are part of the God's family. And if we are part of God's family, then we have a purpose. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, one of my favorite chapters in all the Bible. Paul compares the church, the body of Christ, to the human body. And he's saying how each body part in the body is important. So, for example, if one body part is hurting, the whole body feels it. And so my oldest daughter, just this last week, she smashed her thumb and it got swollen and it affected her entire body. She was hurting, right? So that little thumb that you wouldn't normally pay attention to now was a big deal. And at the same time, when, when someone, one part of the body rejoices, the whole body rejoices. We all have an effect on each other. And what it's saying is that we all are participating in the maturity of each one of us. God is using each one of us to help and participate in the growth and maturity and the Christ-likeness of each other. So he sums up 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 27, and he says, Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. We are all connected. We individually, we contribute to the health and the unity of the church. We each have a part to play. All of us are important. So I'm reminded of a, a story, and my dad's in the room, and he could probably remind me afterwards the accuracy of this, but this is how I remember it, okay? So it was probably junior high-ish, I'm thinking. And so mom and dad worked full-time. Mom cooks dinner. And it got to the point where, you know, I was probably old enough to reach over the kitchen sink to do dishes. Like, I'm still barely tall enough to do that, right? Barely old enough, hot, tight enough to see over this podium. Um, that then the job became for my brother and I to, to clean the kitchen after mom finished dinner. And I remember a couple of times when we first started doing that, I might have been washing dishes. I don't remember which role I was playing. But I finished my job. I was like, cool, Tyler, peace out. I'm done. See you later. <laughs> Tried to walk out of the kitchen, and dad would remind me, Chris, you're not done until the kitchen's clean. Like, the work isn't done until it's done. So you need to stay in there finish the job. So then it got to the point where we were probably good at it some days, maybe not, but if we finish, then we help the other one try to finish cleaning the kitchen. So the reminder of that is if we are all part of each other's lives, if we're all part of the, the growth and maturity of each other, that we can't leave the kitchen. We've got to stay in the kitchen until the Lord comes to get us or we go home to be with him. We have a job to do. And there's something about this closeness in the family that creates friction, right? When we get close together, it's sinners being put together and we're going to create friction. There's going to be conflict. There's going to be pain. There's going to be hurt. That is what, that's part of it. And sometimes I think we get surprised when that happens, but when we're close to people, we are going to get hurt and we're also going to experience great joy. And so it's for this reason that Paul then goes into 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and he describes what love is about. And I'm going to read verses 4 through 7. He says, Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, 
hopes all things and endures all things. There's a reason why Paul wrote that. There's a reason why, because when you're close to people and he's telling you to be patient, you're having to be patient because you're loving on somebody who's making you be impatient, right? Or someone who's causing you to be unkind. Or maybe you're envious or, or boasting. Maybe you're acting arrogantly or rudely. Maybe somebody else in the family is acting that way. But he's saying this is what love looks like. So we have a measuring stick. We've got a way to be able to tell how to love each other and how to know we're growing in maturity and how God's going to develop and help us to be more Christ-like. But the kicker about this passage in 1 Corinthians 13 is that you can't practice those in isolation. You have to practice these when you're together. Practice can only happen in proximity. We have to be together to practice what he's describing in chapter 13. And so when we say we're investing in the family, we're saying we're committed to proximity and practicing until we go to be with the Lord or the Lord comes to us. We've got to be together. We can't do this over a screen. We have to be together. So for some of us, maybe that's a hard thing. So what what keeps you from investing in the family? What keeps you from investing in the church? Is it a previous hurt? Is it maybe hypocrisy you've seen or, you know, pastors failing or whatever it is? Don't leave today without at least getting that resolved and being part of the family. What can you do to start investing in the family? And that's why at LBC and many other churches will have life groups as a way for people to get into smaller groups and get to know each other and become a community. We're doing connection classes. That's why we're really putting a big push on discipleship, more of a one-on-one relationship with each other. But be involved in the church. Get invested in the family. So we know that we grow maturity when we invest in our family. And it's the family that points us to another thing. The family points us to our glorious future. So John 17, verse 24. Jesus says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. It's being in God's presence is what completes us, is what fulfills us, is what perfects us. We were created to have a relationship with God. And someday when we are in eternity separated from this body of sin and flesh and no longer experiencing that, that we can be this perfect union with God the Father in his presence. And so that is what we look forward to. And that's not something that I have always looked forward to. I haven't. And so when I was, it was probably this fifth, sixth grade, I'm trying to remember when it started to happen, but there's a point around that time when I would start to fall asleep, be laying in bed, and I'd start thinking about eternity and forever. And I'd start thinking about, God, what's, I didn't know, God, I wasn't Christian, but it was like, what is this going to be like? Am I going to know it's going to be forever? I had this concept of death and eternity, and I even knew that there was a God, but I would try to put my mind around eternity, and I couldn't. And so the only thing that I could do is just panic would start to overwhelm me, and I'd have like a panic attack. And the only way I could alleviate it was get up, run around the house screaming, and end up in the shower screaming. <laughs> and I realized that when it comes to fight or flight, I'm a flyer, right? I'm going to run away. <laughs> I'm not a fighter um, based on that. And mom would come in and 
Chris, what's wrong? And I tried to explain it, and this didn't happen all the time, but it happened enough where she took me to counseling. And I don't remember much about counseling besides the fact that it didn't help me. I was still fearful of eternity. And it was that fear that caused me to react to people who tried to share the gospel with me in junior high and high school. They were telling me about Jesus. I equated it to God and eternity, and I literally was going to have a panic attack while they were sharing the gospel with me. And I remember one day walking home from school, one of my friends that lived around the corner from me, and she's trying to share the gospel with me, and I looked at her and I said, don't you ever tell me about Jesus again. And I threw in some choice words. I wasn't very kind to her, but I was freaking out. I was scared. Um, But somehow... God worked through that to when I was 18. I had to face it and realize that he's the object of my eternity and I could trust him. So even after coming to the Lord, it wasn't something that went away. It was still something that I struggled with. And it was one man in particular that's in this room that encouraged me to look forward to eternity in heaven. And he would tell me, we would have coffee weekends on Saturdays and he'd tell me how much he was looking forward to being with the Lord and I just didn't understand it. How are you there? I'm not there. But it really was when my mother-in-law came down with cancer that it really clicked for me and it helped me. And it was watching her walk through that process. And so uh, the last three months of my mother-in-law Ruth's life, many of you may know her. She was here for years. She played piano on our worship team, and that was her favorite place to be, on that piano. And it was Easter Sunday, 2016. And so the cancer was advancing She got really sick that weekend, and we weren't sure that she was going to be able to be here with us worshiping on Easter Sunday, but she willed herself to be here, and I had the joy of being on the stage, being able to worship and sing with her. But all of us who were here knew that this was probably the last time she was going to be able to do this. And so she made it through, and and after that day, it started to go pretty quickly. And it was those final two months of her life when I finally convinced her to move in with us. She fought me for it for a month, and I had to tell her, I'm like, Ruth, it would be an honor for you to be in my home. I don't want to die in your home. I said, don't take away the blessing of my children being able to see us love and care for you as you go to be home with the Lord. And so every day when she would wake up at our house, she'd laugh and say, why am I still here? (laughs) Right? She wanted to be home with the Lord. And And then she'd say that, and then she'd scoop my kids up and love on them. And she'd encourage my wife. And so it was that time that I realized, like, she has a hope. Her her body is failing, but she's looking forward to being home with the Lord. I want to be able to do that. Philippians 1, 21 through 25. This is Paul, again, he's writing from prison, encouraging the church at Philippi. And he says, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That was Ruth's favorite verse, and she lived it. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. And if you read in the verses before that, I'd encourage you to do that when you go home. Paul just got done describing the fact that he's in prison, 
and there are brothers who are out preaching the gospel in a way that's envious and selfish, and somehow it's afflicting Paul while he's in prison. I don't understand what that means, but somehow it's causing Paul pain. And so Paul, because he's an older man, he's got the perspective knowing that he's going to be home with the Lord soon. He's able to say in Philippians 1.18, after he describes what's going on, he says, what then? Only in that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Paul knew that it doesn't matter what happens to me in this life. If Christ is being proclaimed, then I rejoice in that. He had perspective because he was focused on his future. So it means we can endure suffering, we can endure hardship, we can endure pain, even when it happens in the church, because it will when we remember that we have a hope waiting for us in heaven. Colossians 1, 3-6. This is Paul again. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. So a question for all of us this morning is, what are you focusing on? Are you focused on the problems in your life? Do you carry a poor me attitude or the world's out to get me? Have you taken your eyes off the prize and that's heaven, being in Christ's glory? And what are you doing to focus on the future? What are you filling your minds with? Are you filling your minds with God's word? Are you being invested in the family that can remind you of the great hope that you have in Christ? As a church, we help each other focus on the future. And the reason we grow in maturity when we focus on the future is because we focus on the objects of our future. That's our Heavenly Father being in His presence. John 17, 25 through 26. says, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. And Paul, or, uh, Jesus says the word no four times in that passage. And that's not just a knowledge of. It's not like I know facts, I pull out an encyclopedia, and I can tell you everything to know about uh, guitar making, which is something I enjoy doing. This is a knowledge that it's experiential. I know this person. And the best way I can describe it is uh, the awkwardness in dating. So before I met my wife, Heather, and there was some other girls that I spent time with and dated, was interested. And I'm at some point in that relationship, it ends because the person says, I'm done with you knowing me. I, the, the relationship didn't go further. But when I met my wife, I had knowledge about her and when I first met my wife, Heather, she was 16 years old and I was 22. And before you judge, I will explain the story there. Um, but so if any of you know Kenny, he's on staff here with us at church and occasionally plays drums, but a good friend of mine, and it was his birthday. And Ruth, my mother, future mother-in-law at the time, was there because they were close friends because they worshiped together on all, like every Sunday, it seemed like. And so Heather was there with Ruth at the birthday party and I showed up and I'm like, who is that girl across the table? She's really pretty. And so I'm talking to Kenny afterwards. I'm like, hey, tell me about her. He's like, she's 16, 
I'll kill you if you try to pursue. <laughs> I'm like, dude, I didn't know. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I literally didn't see her for another three years until she was working at Sequoia Sandwich Shop you know, right here off of Ming. And I was working at Chevron at the time. And I was going into the sandwich shop all the time. And there she is. And so uh, the manager of Sequoia was good friends with Heather and, and Ruth. And so she was trying to matchmake us. And so every time I'd come in, she's like, hey, you know, Heather, like, da, da, da. she'd tell me something about her. And the next time I come in, hey, have you talked to Heather? So at that point, I had knowledge about Heather, but I didn't know her. And it wasn't until I raised up some courage to walk into Sequoia and invite her to come hang out. There was a college group function at Riverwalk Park, and I invited her to come, and she came, and then I got to actually experience what I'd been told about her. And then, fortunately, that relationship continued. We got married. But that's the kind of knowledge we're talking about with God. It's a knowledge of knowing, experiencing someone else. And the interesting thing about knowing a person is that we can only know the person enough if they allow us to know them. It really is on them to let us get to know them. So there's a great quote in a book that, if you haven't read it, it's called Knowing God by J.I. Packer. Actually was a gift from Matt, who's leading us in worship this morning a few years ago. And and J.I. says this that I think really sums this up. It says, the quality and extent of our knowledge of other people depends more on them than on us. Our knowing them is more directly the result of their allowing us to know them than of our attempting to get to know them. And so what we see in this passage in verses 25 and 26, one is that God can be known. And the world may say, there is no God, or if there is a God, we can't know him. But God can be known. Not only can God be known, but God wants to be known. Matthew 1.23, So behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. God wants to be known. And not only does God want to be known, God made himself known. Colossians 1.15 says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. If we've seen Christ, we've seen God. Jesus was here with us. John 14, 6 through 7, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Not only can, is, did God make himself known, he will continue to make himself known. And that's what we see in this passage. Jesus made him known. The Holy Spirit now makes him known. He's the one that convicts us of sin. He's the one that illuminates God's word in our hearts to help us know and understand him more and more every day. He will continue to make himself known to us. And so if God's made himself known to us, then we should seek him. He opened the door for us to know him. He is not preventing us from seeing and knowing and getting to know him. Matthew twenty two thirty seven. Jesus sums it up pretty well. And very simply, it says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and all, with all your mind. That's how we respond to a God who has made himself known to us. So the question is, is how, what are you doing to get to know God? He's opened himself up to you. What are you doing to pursue him? How often are you reading this and getting to know him? How are you obeying what he said in his word? How are you seeking God? 
We find that we grow in maturity when we invest in our family, when we focus on our future, and when we know our Father. And there's an amazing promise that God makes us when it comes to our maturity. It's like whatever the work, whatever God started, he's going to finish. When we came to Christ and we surrendered our lives to him, he started something then and he's going to finish it. And he's going to continue that work while we're here and it's going to be perfected when we are with him in heaven. He doesn't say, awesome, welcome to the family and then leave us there to kind of figure it out on our own. He continues the work and we all get to participate in that work. That's the amazing blessing of being part of the church. So we all get to work together on this. God is committed to the unity of the church, which means God is committed to our maturity. And because God took the first step in making himself known, he will continue to make himself known and he will continue the work that he started in us. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 through 24. It says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you, make you more like Jesus. May he sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And here's the kicker, church. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. God is faithful even when we are faithless because he cannot deny himself. That's who God is. He is our faithful God and he will continue the work that he started in us. So essentially what God is saying is that he's not gonna leave the kitchen. And if God's not gonna leave the kitchen, have we left the kitchen? And what I'm not saying is that We've not, we're no longer saved. I'm saying, have you, have you given up on the church? Are you afraid of your future? Have we so clung to your life here on earth that you've forgotten the glorious future that's, that awaits you? Have you walked away from the kitchen? Are you struggling with knowing God? Are you having a hard time with something about God? Have you walked away because you can't put your mind around it? My encouragement to you is stay in the kitchen. God's got work for you to do. My encouragement to us as a church is let's stay in the kitchen together until the work is done. For our older, more seasoned believers in the church, sometimes I think what can happen is we think that maybe our, work, our job is done. But what I noticed with, with Ruth in particular is her job wasn't done until she went to be with the Lord. She kept working. Paul kept working. We need to keep working. There's guys like me who are longing for discipleship from the generation that's gone before us. And the, the generation coming up after us is longing for my generation to disciple them. My kids, the college guys that I spend time with on Thursday mornings, they're longing for someone to show them the way. And that's what discipleship is about. So my encouragement to you, if, if you are in need or if you're looking to be discipled or want someone to come alongside you and help you grow in your relationship with Christ. I encourage you, in front of the pews, there's a card, it's called Discipleship. Put your name and just check the box saying, I'm interested in being discipled. And if you are in the room and you want to take the plunge and jump in and disciple other people, I encourage you to fill this out, check the box as well. And I had mentioned our discipleship class earlier this morning. We encourage you, join our class. We're going to do this class during the sermon series and we're going to do it again during the summer. We want to equip you to be able to disciple people one-on-one. And lastly, family discipleship's a big deal to me. I want my kids more than anything to know and love the Lord. 
And I want them to leave my house not knowing that mom and dad pointed them to Christ. And they saw, even though we're imperfect, saw mom and dad try to love Jesus. And show them Jesus and teach them God's word. And so it's a perfect opportunity. What we did is we purchased some, these are family devotionals. They're out in the, the LBC Kids booth in the courtyard. 14-day devotional that walks from Palm Sunday through Pentecost. So it's a little devo every day. Gets you and your family together in God's word, praying and discussing it. And you won't believe when your kiddos are in God's word and seeing God do his transforming work in their hearts. It's pretty amazing to watch. But I encourage you to pick up a copy if you want to do that. Well, let's stay in the kitchen. Let's grow in maturity. Let's invest in our family. Let's focus on our future. And let's get to know our Father well. Let me pray. Father, thank you. Thank you, God, first for the strength to be able to do this. And God, your faithfulness to me and to everyone in this room who you called by name and drew them to you and they've surrendered their life to you and they follow you. And God, just the faithfulness to not give up on us and help us mature and grow and God, dealing with our mess at times. God, thank you for your mercy and your forgiveness. Thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit. Thank you that you are with us. Lord, I pray that you would just help us to continue to draw near to you. And God, may you have your way with us, Lord. And we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.